uh, verses 17 through 21 as we continue on in our journey through Philippians. I try to remind myself as we go through this and also to remind you as we're going through it that the, really the theme of this really uh, is our, our partnership in the gospel. Partnership in the gospel. That's why we emphasize so much about praying for uh, family members and friends that that uh, that we all know who don't know Jesus is because uh, it puts us in partnership with you to pray for the greatest burdens you carry. I couldn't matter, imagine a greater burden to carry than to be concerned over somebody who is close to you or somebody you work with or somebody who li you live near uh, about their salvation because nothing else matters. We also pray too, and let's not lose sight of the fact that really maybe this is what it's the theme of the book really. It's not just to pray for the names who are on the crosses, but as we emphasized many times before, we need to pray for the names of those of us who put them there. I mean, because really, we're the, we're the tool through whom God has chosen in His divine design to reach uh, others with the gospel. God has chosen to work through His own to reach others with the gospel. So we're partners in the gospel in prayer. We're partners in the gospel in conduct. We talked about before that no Christian is an island uh, that that your faith is as we said earlier your faith is certainly personal but it, uh, friends it's not private it is not private uh, it, your faith matters your faith matters how we act in church and how we act outside church it matters we hold each other accountable for that in love so that we can move on in our growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ so that he begins to be clearly seen through our life of witness I really believe this. By and large, the Christian church owes the society an apology uh, for not being who we've been called to be. We don't love the way we've been called to love. We don't love each other the way we've called to love each other. And the Bible says it's the only identifying mark. Well, they'll stop and go and look and go, something's different about that. We don't have the hope. We don't have the joy. We don't have the peace. I mean, we're pretty, we're pretty, I, I mean, I'm not being ugly here. I'm including myself in this, but we're pretty pathetic representatives of Jesus Christ on this earth. We have been. And that can change. That can change through one big, giant, wonderful Bible word that has lost its meaning and lost its priority in Christian circles. But it's still there. And it's still as pretty as it's ever been. You know what the word is? Repentance. We can repent. We can repent of sorry living. We can repent of living for lesser things. We can repent of our selfishness. We can repent of our pride. And we can take it to the cross. And Jesus Christ will apply the forgiveness that's already there and let us walk in resurrection power, which is what happened on the other side of it. That's what we could do. We're partners in the gospel. I have a stake, and you have a stake, in how you live and how I live. And we're partners in the gospel. We don't need to lose sight of that. And the theme that we're coming up here on in the text that we're going to look at today is this idea, this mindset about the pilgrim mind. The pilgrim mind. And we shared last week, and we, by way of introduction, that's going through this, uh, these four verses. And we're going to spend probably two more, two more weeks, I would say, in these verses. But that the way to live holy uh, in this polluted world is to have a pilgrim mindset that we're just passing through our citizenship is in heaven this is not home 
for us. We're aliens. We're in a foreign territory. But the problem is, as we've settled down as if this is our home. And we act exactly the way the world acts. And there's a Christian lie that's floating around in Christian circles that the way to win somebody to Christ is to act like them. When the opposite's true. The way to win somebody to Christ is to very much not act like an unregenerate person, but act like a saved person. So that there is a difference. There's supposed to be a difference. It's the difference that makes the difference. And that difference is supposed to be seen. It's not supposed to be hidden. We're not supposed to put it in a corner somewhere and just hold on until Jesus comes and isolate ourselves with some morbid renunciation of this world whereby we get in our recluse circles. We're supposed to be out there and the ebb and flow of living when we're out at the grocery store and the community. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so we come to the pilgrim mindset, but we've got to introduce a couple of things before we talk about that pilgrim mindset. And by the way, there is specific, I'm talking about specific instruction in the Bible about what it means to live the pilgrim life. And most of it's found in 1 Peter. And we're going to examine that two Sundays from now, God willing. It might be next Sunday, I'm not sure. But anyhow, we're going to examine that. But let's look at the pilgrim mindset. Let's draw the contrast between, like we did last week, what has always plagued the church in every age. There are two things that plague the church in every age. And you can, you can use L. I, I, have to, I have to do things like that. I have to do memory association to memorize and remember anything, hardly. And one of the ways that I, mem- I, I, I use this is easy for me because these are my initials, LL. But these two things plague the church. They harass the church in every age since Jesus ascended to heaven. It's the legalist and the license to sin crowd. Those two right there. The legalist, which says, like we talked about last week, I will concede to a certain extent that you get in by grace through faith, but you're kept by the law. That's legalist. Legalist people, legalistic people, use the law to elevate themselves above other people. They don't use the law to edify Jesus, they use the law to edify themselves. The law has limits. The Bible is very specific about them. And we talked about this before. The law cannot save you. And the law cannot empower you to live holy. The only thing the law was designed to do was to show us to be unholy and to lead us to a Savior who by grace could make us holy. That's it. And we're asking all of these things out of the law that it was never designed to do. And the Lord's saying, I know in His patient way from heaven, will you please quit doing that? And so the Apostle Paul dealt with them on the front end of this text by saying, you mutilated people. He was talking about their circumcision. And he said, you know what? Your circumcision amounted to nothing more than mutilating your flesh. That's all it is. That's all it was. It meant nothing because it hasn't changed you. Legalists love to put bondage and yokes and requirements on other people to burden them down, to try to live holy, thinking that that's going to produce a holy life, and that does not produce a holy life. It produces a frustrated life. Then, on the other hand, which probably in our church culture now, as far as just in general, probably most characterizes the church today, is the license to sin crowd. Now, these are the ones that say, oh, man, 
This grace through faith stuff, man, count me in. I got in by grace through faith. We're kept by grace through faith. Grace, 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 love, 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 grace, love, grace, love, love, grace, love, grace, love. And I could go out there and I can live exactly the way I want to live. I can indulge and let my passions just rise up within me. I can live out my passions and care little or nothing about the will of God and pursuing His clear call on my life and certainly have no priority to holy living because after all, where sin abound, grace does all the more. And the Apostle Paul habitually dealt with that within his ministry and we're still dealing with it today. I tell you this about the devil. He's not very creative in the sense that his old methods work so well why try something else? And so this is what he... And you know how he characterizes those guys? There's one phrase in this text he uses to characterize the license to sin crowd. Probably the most scary characterization in all of the Bible. Probably the worst thing that you could probably say about somebody. You know what it is? They're enemies of the cross. They're enemies of the cross. Well, Bill Clinton, and you've heard of me, and those of you who've been with us before have heard this analogy before, but it rings true, and I like to use it. Well, Bill Clinton was running for president of the United States, arguably the most wicked man to ever occupy the White House. And when he was running for president of the United States, he was running against a president who had just come off of winning a war in the Gulf. And usually when you win a war, you're riding the crest of the wave, and nobody would have ever believed that anybody could mount any serious challenge to beat him, George H.W. George Bush. You remember, those of you can remember this. But what happened in that time frame was, during that year, that election year, the economy went way south, if you'll remember. Things were really bad. We were in a, a, a serious recession. And so Bill Clinton was a great politician. I don't mean he's a great man, and I didn't mean that to be complimentary. That's not complimentary. That is not a compliment. I'm going to put that down before I get emails. But he's a great politician, and this is how they won the election, if you'll remember. He had a campaign manager, and he, he, everything that they did, every, every, every correspondence internal in his campaign had one thing at the top of it. Every time they had a meeting, it was one thing. You remember what that phrase was? It's the economy, stupid. In other words, wherever the president, the incumbent, wants to take the debate, if he wants to go to the Gulf War, he's got you there. You know, military might, we won it, we took the hill, you know, that kind of thing. Don't go there with him. No matter what he wants to talk about, and no matter what, you drive the debate and you make it consistent with the God of America. And the God of America is money. And so therefore, appeal to their God. And if you appeal to your, their God, you will beat Him hands down. If you let Him take the debate anywhere else, you're, you're vulnerable. He's got you. Just go to the economy. Look into the camera in your sleep willy way and say, are you better off now than you were? Do all that kind of stuff. And guess what? It worked. It handily worked. And the White House was handed to Him. And we've had worse presidents, but we've probably had no man who was a worse man ever be president. And therefore, he got the White House. Now, let's take a pure view of that. Let's, let's, let's take that from, let's take that from the, the depths of degradation and immorality. And let's look at the polar opposite view. 
And here's what the enemy has pulled on the church today. Our most powerful tool, our, the epicenter of our message, we've gotten off message. We have put more confidence in exploring the, the fossil record than we have in learning the gospel. The gospel is verified by the fossil record, but the fossil record is not a replacement for the gospel. The agency by which God saves lost men and women is still the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And we've conceded that. We have given that over to the enemy. And here's what we've done so doing this. And this is shut up in my bones. Hear the spirit with which this is heralded. Hear it please. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the gospel that transforms because it's the Savior who transforms. And God would never call us stupid. But I know He's looking down from heaven and He's saying to us right now, Believer, son, daughter, it's the cross. The vulnerability the enemy has is the cross of Jesus Christ. And he cares little or, bit, little or nothing about what else we ever held or talk about. It is the cross. You want to win hearts? It's the heart we're after. You win it through the gospel. And what is the gospel but the cross of Jesus Christ? Every question you'll ever have in your life is answered at Calvary. Why wouldn't the enemy want to draw us away from the source of our greatest power? Not a source, not an addendum to our power, but the very power of Christianity itself is found in the death, burial, resurrection, and hope of the imminent return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's it! That's what he wants. That's what, he's trying to sway us away from that. He wants to woo us off the debate and go some other place. He wants, to, he wants to subtly deceive us into thinking that through intellectual ability we can talk somebody into salvation. If that, hey, let me tell you something right now. For the lost man, it is not the lack of evidence that is his problem. It's the suppression of evidence that's already there. You don't go to hell because you lack evidence. You go to hell because of sin. The Bible says the lost man is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He doesn't want there to be a God because inherent in the definition of God is accountability. Inherent in the definition of God is judgment. Inherent in the definition of God is that I answer to somebody who's bigger than me. Inherent in the definition of God is He's righteous and we're not. Inherent in the definition of God is there must be some eternal punishment for offending me. The lost man doesn't want to know God. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Let me let you in on a secret. Matter of fact, let's go over there. Look at Romans. Chapter 2. Excuse me, Romans chapter 3. Enemies of the cross. 
enemies of the cross. Not the legalist, not the one who will vote, to vote law as a means to holy living life and service. But no, no, no. The one who wants to just absolutely live out his passions in the light of the cross of Calvary, look up at a God who seems to not be doing anything about it and say, God, we're courting, we're carting our sin as a cart rope in front of your face like they did in Ephesians chapter 5, and you've yet to do anything about it. You must not care. You must be powerless to do anything about it. Why don't you just do something about it? They'll do that this weekend at the Gay Pride March. They'll go down there and they'll cart that degradation right in front of a holy God and say, you just hadn't done anything about it. You must be okay with this because otherwise you'd have done something about it when they don't realize that in heaven there's a God who's withholding judgment for one reason, and that's because He's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, guess what? It's easy to cite that and say that's evil, but you look in the mirror and see what's evil in your life. Lost people act lost. What about saved people acting saved? We've conceded over our greatest power. We've conceded over our witness. Now look at, look at Romans chapter 3. It says, as, as it is written, we're reading in verse 10. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. They have all together turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good. No, not one. It doesn't say anything about there's no one who doesn't have sufficient evidence. There's no one who's not yet learned enough. There's no one who's not yet been informed. It doesn't say that. It says there's no one who's done good. No, not one. Now he's quoting there from two Psalms that are almost identical. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Go look at Psalm 14. We could pick either one. But let's just go to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. Let me show you something about this. Some of you know this already. I'm going to show you biblical evidence of the fact that there is no such thing as an atheist. There is no such thing as an atheist. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that through conscience there are two evangelists that speak to everybody. There are two evangelists that herald that God is to everybody. Everybody who's ever come out of the womb knows that there is a God. It is not lack of evidence. It's the suppression of evidence that's the issue. And he says, we come out of the womb, and there are two evangelists. Here go the C's again. This helps me. We had L's, licensed to sin, legalists. Now we got the C's. There are two evangelists. Teach your children this. There are two evangelists that speak to everybody that say, God is... You know who they are? Conscience and creation. Because of what has been made, we know there's a God. And because there's a conscience, and there's a difference between right and wrong. And every culture has some kind of system to punish right and reward wrong. Everybody knows there's a God. We start out arguing for, which we shouldn't be arguing anyway, the existence of God. Then we're going way back further than God's even willing to go. Conscience in creation says, God is. Right, now watch this. Look at Psalm 14. It says, the fool has said in his heart, watch this, there is no God. Do you see it? Okay. If you have a Bible, many words of the Bible are added for translation purposes. Just to make the English read better. If you'll look at this verse, 
Most of you probably will see this in italics. There is, is in italics. Do you see it? Most of you have that in there? There is is in italics. The reason it's in italics is because it's added by the English translators to make it read easier. But if you transliterate that, you know what it says? The fool has, watch me, y'all got to look up and see this. The fool has said in his heart, no, God. You see it? He didn't say there is no God. He said no to God. You are, I know you are, but let me tell you something right now. I'm real comfortable in being God. And you threaten my position as God. So therefore, no thanks. No such thing as an atheist in the Bible. The people who assert atheism, I'll give you that. But they're just playing a game with us. Because they believe in God. Because they've seen what He's made. And they know that there's a right and wrong. Which is all the reason why they want to suppress the knowledge of it. Because one day they got to come into account as to whether or not they've lived right or they've lived wrong. And we know all the answer for that. So we've dealt with the lost man. Now let's deal with the saved man. Let's go over here. Let's deal with us. Let's see what the Holy Spirit would say to us. Are you all ready? Philippians chapter 3. Look at Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to look. Verse 17. Watch this. Brethren, join in my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame. Who set their minds on earthly things for our citizenship is a heaven. Here's the pilgrim mentality. For which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that may be transformed into his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul warns them because he knew it was going to happen in every age and the Bible is up to date. It's more up to date than today's paper. And he knows it's going to happen in this age and my goodness, is it not happening in this church age? You know what? It's, it's reckless abandon to passions, desires, appetites, regardless of whether or not they're principled in God's Word, it doesn't matter. You just live like you want to. You can exploit grace. Do you know what? We talked about the fact that the cross is the work of the cross for us, and then there's the daily the work of the cross in us. That the work of the cross for us has reconciled us to God. The Bible says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The work of the cross for us reconciles us to God. The work of the cross in us lets the God that's in us come out. And in order, to, in order for the God that's in us to come out, He's got to kill the God that was in us that we still deal with, and that's me. And that takes some doing. The old man dies hard. It seems like a slow kill sometimes, doesn't it? But let me tell you something. Let me tell you what God's aim is. In the work of the cross for us, He's reconciled us. Done deal. It says, we have been reconciled to God. It doesn't say we're yet to be reconciled to God. We have been reconciled to God, past tense, through the death of His Son. But through His resurrected life, we draw from new strength and power. And that life is to be manifest in the way that we live. In other words, God is making us holy. But here's the problem. It's not that it's just the end that we don't agree with. It's the means that we don't agree with. 
In other words, we want a crossless Christianity. We want the benefits of resurrection without the death that must most certainly precede it. We want a crown without a cross. This was the temptation that was leveled against our Lord during His whole earthly ministry. Take it. It's yours. Forget the cross business. Forget the scourge and the shame. Forget the suffering and the pain that you know is on the horizon. Take it. It's yours for the taking. Was that not what happened in Matthew chapter 4 when our Lord was tempted by the devil? He kept up in the ante. Started out appealing to his physical hunger. Hey man, listen, you're so hungry, you make these stones become bread. And then Jesus responds with the word of God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then he takes him up to the temple. And he takes God's word and twists it. And he took a word in the scriptures that was about trusting God and turned it into a word about tempting God. And he said, you're not, you're not supposed to tempt God. He quotes him again. All of these are from Deuteronomy. Then he comes to the third one. And he's like, he's just kind of up and down. He's ratcheted up a little bit. He's appealing to his earthly appetites. Then he's trying to confuse who God is in his life and what God's role plays in his life. And then he goes to the third one. And this is the piano part. This is the one he was after all along. You see all of that? You see all of it? You bow down and worship me. I'll give you every last bit of it. Let me ask you a question. You have the authority to do that? He had the authority to do that. He had the authority to do that because the first Adam gave it to him. It cursed the entire human race. And now we're under the sway of what God calls the God, little g, little g, the God of this age. That was a legitimate claim. Otherwise, the, the temptation would have had no teeth if it wasn't legitimate. He said, you can have it. And Satan's doing that to you right now. Assert your rights. You can have it. Get ahead of God and go after that relationship because you can have it. Keep on in that unforgiveness because you can have it. You've got that over that person. If you give it up, what have you got left? Keep your pride. You can have it. You can have it. You can, you can be prideful and be a Christian at the same time. You can pull it off. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Keep stealing from God. You can pull it off. You can do that and still go to heaven. You still got it, man. You can have the crown. Come on. Avoid this cross business. Don't worry about that. That's just uptight Christians who've not understood the realm of grace that all the grace people understand. It was the temptation level of our Lord, Matthew 4, 3, 6 and 8. And David... There was a temptation leveled against him too. Long before he was ever made king, he was told he would be king. And he had chances. He had opportunities, man. I mean, Saul goes in there to the bathroom in the cave, and there he's standing within inches of him. He could have cut his throat. And took the, you, know what, you know what the devil was up there doing? Take it, man. Take it. Take it. God's already told you you're going to be king. Don't you believe God? Don't you stand on his word? Take it, man. Take matters into your own hands. Forget about this renegade life that you have to live. Forget about being on the run. Forget about all the psalms that God's going to write through you while you're on the run that blesses me today. None of those would have been written. Not a one. 
Most of those psalms were written with great pain, knowing that a guy he was loyal to, who he would have given his life for, was trying to kill him. And here he is on the run, and they're all after him. And he's the appointed, anointed king. And what has God birthed out of that experience? Some of the greatest psalms ever written. I wonder how many psalms are going unwritten. I wonder how many sermons are left undone and not preached. I wonder how many lives are not touched and changed simply because you and I want to hang on to our pride and we do not want a Christianity that involves a cross. During songs, I was telling Jill to the kids this yesterday, the ones that last, the ones that are probably born out of the greatest amount of pain. When peace like a river attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. I was coming, coming here this morning. And a friend of mine, Charles Billingsley, was singing down on the radio. Bless me, I want to pull over. And just have a... Because you know why? That was written in the aftermath of that man who saw his family killed. Every one of them. His wife, and I forgot how many children. It was born out of pain. It wasn't born out of some Braves game. In the ninth inning where they pulled it off. It was born out of the deepest amount. He had to draw from something that wasn't him in order to write that. You know why? Because he wasn't an enemy of the cross. All the frilly stuff. You know, the frou-frou stuff. Those songs come and go. But there are some songs that endure. And listen, I like black gospel. Slap happy, bass guitar, wham, doing all of that stuff. So don't tell me it's about style. It's not about style. Most of you would run away if you knew what I like. It's about substance. He drew from a well that's deep. And that's what happened to David. David was on the run. David was shot. The sword was after him. And what did he do? He was harassed by the enemy. Take it now. 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 Enough of waiting. Enough of waiting. Let me tell you something. Somebody told me one time that I never forgot. I've seen many people get ahead of God by getting ahead of Him. But I've yet to see anybody miss God by waiting on Him. And He waited. And now, Jesus Christ is going to sit on the throne of David one day. That's top billing. It's not the throne of Saul. It's the throne of David. Why? Because it was a precursor to our Savior. The Garden of Gethsemane. Could you imagine the temptation level at him there? Almost in sight of Calvary. Know it. Man, if we were today, if we sang that song in today's vernacular, we'd be going, Oh, the wondrous electric chair. Oh, the wondrous electric chair. Oh, the wondrous lethal injection. That's why the world's confounded by this. They just go, D What? And that brutal death that awaited him. He knew it. And the human part of him said, Jesus, I mean, God, Father, let's take one more look at this. Could you just scan? One more time, do a quick scan. Is there another way to save and rescue Lindsay Lewis from hell? You fill in your name. You know what the word came back? You know, the enemy had him kind of encouraged him to kind of gaze up and see what awaits you. Because they knew what happened on that hill. 
to stay up there for days. Romans have perfected the art of cru cru crucifixion. They didn't invent it, but they perfected it. And you look over that hill and say, you really want that? And you can stop this like that. He's saying that to you today. There's some circumstances you want to wrestle out of. There's some things you want to change in your life right now. There's some things that are just causing you the greatest consternation. They are contorting your spirit. Many of you, the Lord's saying, you wait on me. You trust me. I'm doing something now. I'm doing something. I'm, no, I'm more interested in changing you than I am in changing your circumstances. We've got some work to do, you and I. I'm come to kill you. You want it to end. And maybe it's not time for it to end. You can spiritualize the ending. You can do it. You can have people come along beside you and spiritualize it too. You deserve to be happy. Hmm. Let's see. You deserve to be happy. Thou shalt be happy. You'll give me a moment. Let me go back at the concordance to see if we can find. Thou shalt be happy. Jesus came because of your lack of purpose. Jesus came because you don't have enough self-esteem. Jesus came because you have unresolved hurts. And he redeemed you from what other people had done. Because you haven't done anything wrong. I never have. It's always been other people that have done it to you. But you deserve to be happy. Hmm. I'll get back with you. Because the message from heaven is, I didn't come to make you happy, I came to make you holy. You keep with that mindset. You're going to keep running away from me and you're going to miss me by a country mile. You're going to lose what I wanted to do. You're not going to get to see it. Remember, next time you read a song and it was written, because they'll tell you what time frame they were written. And you read a song and it blesses you and you find out that it was while David was on the run against Saul. You better thank your, your God that that man let God have his way with him. And you can write a psalm. You can put your name in it. See, we can either be cooperate with his work or we can resist it, one or the other. And the temptation is to resist. He drew the contrast there, but he said, look, there's Calvary and there's the throne. Now, you can exempt Calvary and go straight to the throne. It's up to you. He exempts Calvary. Abraham doesn't get saved. He exempts Calvary. Moses doesn't get saved. He exempts Calvary. David's not saved. Samuel's not saved. Adam is not saved. Guess what? He exempts Calvary and you and I are not saved. Now was it worth it? I think it was worth it. You know why? Because the Hebrews, book of Hebrews says that he had a forward-looking faith, our Lord did. And he said he despised the shame. In other words, he thought nothing of it. Because on the other side, on the other side, he knew he was going to purchase you. And if it means going through the cross, why is it a crown of thorns? See, we want a crossless Christianity. It doesn't add to what he did. Don't, don't misunderstand that. You can't add to what he did. My suffering doesn't redeem anybody. It's not the addition to what he did. It's the manifestation of what he did in my life. Am I going to let him have his way with me? Why was it a crown of thorns? Because it was a judgment of God against original sin. What's going to happen to you? 
You get to war of the land and what it's going to do. It's going to provide nothing but thorns from you. It's going to encumber your way. It's going to stick you. And every time you get stuck, you're going to be constantly reminded that you, that you disobeyed me. And so what did he do? He crowned him. He took the curse. It's the curse of sin. He got coronated by our Lord, with, by our God, God the Father. He was coronated with the curse of sin. And then God poured out the full measure of His wrath on His only blessed, only begotten Son. And He took the curse so that one day we could wear the crown. The Bible says in James 1.12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life to those who love him. What a great God. You know what? Until we get to that future glory, there's a cross for you. You hang on to your contentiousness. We can hang on to our pride. We can hang on to courting the favor of other people and care about what they think more than we think about. Gary said something yesterday in our Bible study, and I just so I so so identified with what he said. It's absolutely true. A friend of mine the other day when I were talking about it. The fundamental issue is we don't fear God anymore. We don't. We've lost our fear of God. We've lost our reverence and our awe of Him. We've lost our sight. We, you know what? We've lost our confidence in His Word. You know, the Apostle Paul said, there's one thing. You remember we talked about this in Philippians. He said, listen, if I find out that I, it's not the size of your building, and I, it's not because I'm a jealous pastor and wish we had a big building. I couldn't care less about that. If you don't believe that, then I just, I'm sorry. I can't, nothing I do beyond tell you. And, I, and, I don't, and I'm not jealous of crowds, man. I've got pastor friends of mine who preach in churches that they run 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, or 8,000 on Sunday morning. I'm not jealous of that. If they, they, that's them and day business, like we say in South Georgia. Y'all didn't get that, did you? That's their business, okay? But, you know, and that's, that's got nothing to do with that. Hey, I'm telling you, it doesn't. It's got to do with the fact that when he said, I will find out if my service among you was profitable at all if I find out this one thing. You know what it was? Does anybody remember? You got it, Nancy? What? I don't think you are. No. In Philippians. It's not the size of your building. It's not the size of your budget. It's not your nickels and noses. I'm not going to evaluate you based on nickels and noses. I'm not. It's not any of that. It's not in your programs, anything like that. I mean, it's, just, it's one thing. It's just one thing. It's the one thing that we've conceded. It's the one thing that we've lost. It's the one thing that's gutted our power. If I find out that you're holding forth the word of life, if you're still faithful and loyal to the message of this book and the God that this book points to, if your confidence still lies in this, if your confidence still lies in His revealed Word, if that's the report that gets back, I, the Apostle Paul, will know that my time among you in Philippi was not wasted. That's it. That's it. Because see, the strength to endure and persevere what fuels the trip to the cross is the exceeding value of the precious promises that we have from God that make us partakers in the divine nature. 
That's what Paul said, or Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1. Through these exceedingly great and precious promises. Can you think I love the language there? You're a partaker in the divine nature. Because see, the cross is followed by resurrection. I want to be a part of a church that can't be explained. And I want to have a life that can't be explained. And I want to have a family that can't be explained. I like for people to look at me and go, if anything ever happens in that gooberhead's life, it'll have to be God. Because you know what? That's the truth. If anything happens, it'll have to be God. I can't explain it except a touch of His hand. If anything happens in this church, it had to be God. It couldn't have been that those people could have gotten together and done anything for the kingdom that would have mattered to anything apart from God, apart from the touch of God. i got a friend of mine. He's a very close friend of mine. I've spent a lot of time with him. He's a minister of education in a very large church. I remember when he came. I was at the banking business back then, and they brought me over. I was a member of this church, and they would bring over new people, and I'd handle their banking business. And so I got to know him from the moment he got there. And they probably entertained a thousand resumes when they were looking for a minister of education at this church. It's one of those real, it'd be like a notch on your belt to be the minister of education at this church. Now, he didn't regard it that way, but it would. Career-minded hirelings would look at it that way. We've got too many hirelings and not enough pastors, but hirelings would look at it that way. you know. And so by the call of God, he came to that church. He told me this one time. He said he went to a conference and he was teaching on, uh, on uh, some education principles. And when you pastor a large church, everybody wants to know how you do it. You know, and everybody wants to know what your measure should say. So pastors will pay as much money as they can pay to fly to every conference you do to hear every word that drips off your lip. So they can go back and do exactly what you did thinking they're going to get the same results. Happens all the time. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not down in conferences, but it just does. And so... Therefore, nobody calls us to do conferences. Reckon why? Okay. But he was at a conference once and he was speaking. He got finished. And the guy who had a PhD, my grandfather says it stands for past, fell, and death. He had a D. You'll get it in a minute. I don't know what it stands for, but I like that one, don't you? My grandfather was just crazy. He was funny. A DD, my grandfather said that it stands for devil disturber. And he had a BA, which stands for born again. Hallelujah. But he had all these you know, degrees. There's nothing wrong with that. It's great. It's great. But he walked up to him and he said, I want to ask you something. He said, Where'd you go to seminary? He said, I didn't go to seminary. He said, Where'd you go to Bible college? I didn't go to Bible college. And my friend's real southern. He's, he, he makes me sound like I'm from Brooklyn. And he said, he said uh, I'll do you one better than that, friend. I didn't go to college. And I'm from a hill in Tennessee. How about that? And he stepped back from him and he said, I envy you. He said, why is that? He said, because everything that God ever does in your life, he'll get the credit for. Nothing wrong with having those things. But there is something wrong with relying on them. You know what? Jesus is my life. And Jesus is your life. And if he has his way with you, there is a cross in your life. 
I don't know what it is. You sitting there probably know what it is. Maybe you're in a marriage that you'd like to get out of. Or maybe, you know, I'm not happy. I'm not this. I'm not discontent. Maybe you're going to be called upon to do something that rubs you against the rain of everything that's in you. Maybe there's some unforgiveness in your heart that you're nursing and holding on to because you forgot all about the cross. Because if you get to the cross, you have no justification for hanging on to it. And you know that the moment you go to the cross, you'll be stripped of everything that you can make as an excuse to justify having it. Maybe there's some bitterness. Maybe there's some fear in your life. The Bible says God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. Maybe maybe there's there's a personal sin issue in your life. Maybe, maybe sir, brother, you have an internet problem. You know, maybe you have an eye, a wandering eye problem. And nobody knows it except you and Jesus. And maybe it's that's what's torn down the intimacy between you and your wife. Maybe you have a complacency problem. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe it's work worship. Maybe it's covetousness. And you're not satisfied. You're never in a state of satisfaction with what you currently have. Or resent those who have more. That's going on all the time in our society. Class warfare. Envy over incomes and position. I mean, we're, we're full of it. We get played into it. Maybe it's impatience. Maybe it's just not waiting on God. Maybe it's a mouth that needs to be cleaned up. Maybe a Facebook page that needs to be cleaned up. Maybe a, maybe a, a pride issue that only you and God know about. Did you know some of the people I found out in ministry who seem to be the most humble, that if you spend enough time with them, you find out they're full of the most pride? What is it? Where is your cross? You want to cross this Christianity? You want the cross? I mean, you want resurrected life without the cross? Can I say this to you as tenderly and as kindly as I know? You can't have it. You can't have it. But if you'll embrace the cross, you'll be like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego when they were thrown in the fire. You remember that story? I'd love to read it right now. We won't do it. But the Bible goes out of its way. Just, I mean, just ridiculously goes out of its way to say they were bound. They were cast bound. They were cast bound. I mean, it's like five or six times in the narrative. It just goes out of its way to say they were bound, okay, in this fire. And then they look in there. And who's in the fire with them? Jesus. <laughs> He'll be in the fire with you. And the Bible says they were loosed. You know what? When they got in the fire, the only thing they lost was what bound them. When God puts you on the cross, the only thing you stand to lose is what currently binds you. For some of you, that's scary because you've got comfortable in your bondage. You know it. At least it's predictable. And oh, there's a life for you out there of resurrected living where God wants to empower you and walk with you and love on you and embrace you and speak to you and have an intimate relationship with you and yes, use you for His glory. Amen.